This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. We observed World Cancer Day this week. Millions of people around the world die of cancer every year. But there are promising developments in treatment and research, which means there are more and more survivors. Today, I'll talk to Dr. Stephen Gallinger about the latest in the fight against cancer. As Canada's population continues to age, the concern over elder abuse mounts. It's with that in mind that the Toronto Police Service has created a new special training program. Today we'll hear more from Constable Patricia Fleischman. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, a German court announced that a 93-year-old former guard at the Nazi death camp Auschwitz will go on trial this April on charges of being an accessory to the murder of at least 1,075 people. The accused was a member of the Nazi SS guard team at Auschwitz in occupied Poland from November 1942 to June 1943. Although he is not accused of having been directly involved in any killings, the prosecution says he was aware of the camp's function as a facility for mass murder and that by joining it, he consciously participated and accelerated the deaths of hundreds of people. It looks like Canadians are a happy bunch. A new poll by the Angus Reid Institute this week has found that two-thirds of Canadians rate themselves as pretty happy. The results come from an online survey that showed a large majority of us are satisfied with everything from our relationships to our health. And not surprisingly, the happiest people of all are Zoomers. 41% of respondents over the age of 55 rated themselves as very happy, while 57% said they are pretty happy. At 120, Quebec's Cécile Laurent may be the oldest person in the world, and officials from the Guinness World Book of Records are working to prove it. Laurent was born in Haiti and lived there for most of her life. She only moved to Quebec in 2010 after the devastating earthquake that rocked her home country. She now lives in Laval with her family, including her 28-year-old great-grandson, Ronald Chéry. He says Guinness employees are currently working on a fact-finding mission in Haiti to confirm the date of Laurent's birth, which her family maintains was January 31, 1896. Currently, the world's verified oldest person is Susanna Mouchat-Jones of the United States. She'll turn 117 on July the 6th. What's up, Doc? The man who replaced Mel Blanc as the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Sylvester the Cat, and other Looney Tunes died this week at the age of 63. Joe Alasky began voicing the famous characters in 1989, 
following the death of voice artist pioneer Mel Blanc. Born in upstate New York in 1952, Olasky started out as an impressionist before being recruited by Warner Brothers. His big break came in 1988 when he provided voices for the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit? He went on to win Emmys and other awards for his performances of Bucks Bunny, Daffy Duck, and Marvin the Martian. In a 2012 interview, he revealed that Bugs Bunny's voice was the hardest voice he ever had to master, and it took him two full years. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This Thursday marked World Cancer Day, an annual event that unites people around the world in the fight against the disease. This year, 8.2 million people will die of cancer. But there is new hope because an old approach to cancer treatment is showing exciting new results. I asked one of Canada's top cancer researchers and surgical oncologists, Dr. Stephen Gallinger, where the biggest promise lies. If you ask most oncologists or those who are at the forefront, they're going to answer uh, immunotherapy, uh, meaning harnessing the immune system to kill cancer. And the idea has been around for ages, decades. But in the past year, there have been some new drugs called checkpoint inhibitors, which have been designed to release the natural inhibition of white blood cells or lymphocytes from killing cancer cells. In other words, they probably want to kill the cancer cells, But the cancer cells are smart, and they're producing proteins or other molecules that are keeping the white cells quiet so they can't kill them. And these new drugs that I'm talking about have been designed to release the break. So they're called checkpoint inhibitors. And they've had uh, substantial benefits for some patients with some cancers like skin cancer and kidney cancer. But what we're seeing that's even more exciting is the cancers that have traditionally been very resistant to immunotherapy... Uh, There is a subset that seems to be responsive, and that includes colon cancer, uh, uterine cancer, even lung cancer, stomach cancer. And these, uh, over the past many years, have been resistant to this new form of treatment. So that's probably been the most significant advance in the past 12 months. There are some people who think that the answer for all cancers ultimately lies with immunotherapy. Do you agree with that? I don't think there's one treatment for all cancers, so I would say I don't agree with it. First of all, immunotherapy is not one therapy either. There are many drugs, and there are many drugs coming, and they're actually addressing or attacking or dealing with the immune system in different ways. So I would say it's not going to be the cure for all cancers, but as I said, there's been a really significant uh, resurgence of interest over the past year with some real tangible benefits. In many respects, this is first-generation, you know, 2016 immunotherapy. And in a couple of years, or maybe even next year, there'll be many more drugs. So I, I think there's a lot of optimism with respect to the immune system, and there was a lot of frustration for 20 or 30 years. Are there any cancers that have seen uh, real gains in survival over the last year or so? Prolonging life, length of life. Uh, you brought up immunotherapy, so there were have been some staggering results staggeringly good results with uh, melanoma uh, and immunotherapy. Some patients or a small subset of patients with lung cancer or or stomach cancer are living much longer. And some of you may have heard uh, a very interesting statistic, which is kind of a negative statistic, showing that there were actually more people who died of pancreas cancer 
in the U.S. last year than breast cancer, which was a staggering statistic, and it represents sort of the great gains made in breast cancer and not great gains made in pancreas cancer, for example. So I think all the major cancers have seen some benefit in survival. I was going to bring that up, that actually very disturbing uh, statistic about pancreatic cancer. And, uh, you know, we were all expecting that it would become the second largest cause of death by 2020. But here we are in 2016, and it's already the third largest. And if they've, they've got a number on it in the States, it's probably the same situation here. We just haven't quantified it, right? That's right. I, I don't think the statistics in Canada would be proportionally any different than in the U.S. As I said, it's, it's a good news, bad news story, because breast cancer deaths have fallen so much that now we're just seeing a reversal or a change or a leapfrogging of of causes of death from pancreas cancer over breast cancer, which is quite amazing to many of us because of the incidence of the disease. Uh, breast cancer is much more common. And I think this statistic that you refer to represents uh, a bunch of uh, factors, and most of them are fairly obvious. One is screening. So breast cancer screening is fairly effective. So patients with very small curable tumors are picked up and so they're not going to suffer or die from their cancer. Also, a lot of it relates to treatment. There's many, many treatments that are fairly effective for breast cancer, and breast cancer patients live much longer, and many more are cured. The cure rate, I think, is in the 80s. It's 89%. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's quite an amazing statistic for a common cancer like breast cancer. Unfortunately, for pancreas cancer, as you know, uh, we have sort of 1% increase in the cure rate in each decade since the 80s. So it's now it's about 7 or 8%. It's 8%. Which is, you know, which is terrible. Um, I'm hoping, as many of us are, that the work that many of us are doing and are committed to is going to change that and so that the statistic will not be what is predicted in 2020 and that it'll be different. Why is it so tough? It is the most lethal form of cancer. It's the worst survival rate. I think the biggest problem is that we don't have a good handle on the scientific basis behind this disease. It has similarities to many of the other cancers, but it does have unique differences. The, uh, the cancer genome that many of us are looking at looks really wildly disorganized, and none of us really understand why that happens because we don't really understand how it's happening and why it happens so quickly. We don't really have a way to treat it yet. I mean, the positive news is that as we do more and more genetic research, we're seeing small pockets of patients who do have a type of disease that might not have responded to the traditional treatment, which is why it's only been 7 or 8% cure rate. But some of the newer treatments, even the immunotherapies, for example, might be effective in small subsets of patients. And we don't have a screening test, but there is a lot of work and there's a lot of dedicated people trying. We have World Cancer Day this week. The mm-hmm. theme of this World Cancer Day is uh, I can do something about it. I'm capable. What do you think people can do? Well, there's a lot that they can do. I mean, obviously, the first thing is looking after themselves and their family with prevention, healthy living, 
And then obviously seeing their physician, if there are the so-called early warning signs, and it's different for every cancer, you know, we, we do have provincially mandated or provincially supported screening programs in breast cancer and prostate cancer and colon cancer. So if people adhere to those, there's evidence that their cancer rates will fall. Um, and then, of course, we're hoping that people will donate, give, support, volunteer, do everything that they feel they should to help us make progress. There's some great minds here and uh, people need to be supported to do their work. On that note, thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. That was Dr. Stephen Gallinger. He is head of the Hepatobiliary Pancreatic Surgical Oncology Program at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University Health Network, and he is spearheading research on cancer genetics. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Up next, elder abuse is a growing concern in the GTA, so much so that the Toronto Police Service has created a special course to train officers to recognize the signs and symptoms. I'll talk to Constable Pat Fleischman. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. The sheer size of the Zoomer demographic is changing most everything in our society, and policing is no exception. The Toronto Police Service is the first force in Canada to offer a dedicated training course to educate officers on the indicators, factors, and circumstances of elder abuse. Constable Pat Fleischman, the Toronto Police Vulnerable Persons Coordinator, dropped by our studios to talk about it. Right now, we're at a point where there are more people over the age of 65 than there are people under 15. I think Don't we know most, it? most folks now know that. And we are recognizing the need, a changing need, the types of crimes, the aging victims, aging offenders as well, and how we respond to that as a police service. What are we going to do? What kind of training isn't going to be in place? We're going to be seeing increased types of calls for service for these type of situations. My understanding is that Elder abuse is one of the most underreported crimes out there. Absolutely. And if it's underreported, what does that mean? It's underinvestigated. And if it's underinvestigated, it's underprosecuted. It's believed somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to 10% of the population will actually make that disclosure. But if you speak with service providers who are working in the area, they will tell you the numbers they are seeing within their agencies are much, much higher. In fact, it could be approaching 50%. What qualifies as elder abuse? The Toronto Police Service definition is harm caused to someone over the age of 65 by a person in a position of trust or authority. So what's really key in that definition is the person in a position of trust or authority. So we're talking someone they know, they know very well. We're talking a family member, most often adult children, predominantly adult sons, but it can also be grandchildren and nieces and nephews. I've had calls where it's the siblings. The siblings are doing this. It's the in-laws, it's friends, it's neighbors, it's people acting in a professional capacity. It could be a financial advisor. It could be a healthcare worker. How much of this abuse is financial abuse? as opposed to a physical kind of abuse? Well, again, because it's so underreported, it's difficult to give an exact number. But absolutely, without question, financial abuse is the biggest. And financial abuse runs the gamut from theft by person holding power of attorney, and we're seeing more and more of that. But it's also just regular theft and fraud and forgery. 
It's taking mail. It's cashing checks. As you said, these are often family members. How big a factor is it that they don't want to report their families? And on top of the, the anguish this might cause them, if they do report, then that could end the relationship. It's very, very difficult. People are so reluctant to make those disclosures, to make that report, particularly when it is a family member. In fact, what they are prepared to do is to remain in unhealthy, dysfunctional relationships, violent, abusive relationships, because it's better than nothing at all. So how do you help them? Um, It was a big struggle to get people to disclose sexual abuse. Are are there parallels here? There are parallels with domestic violence, with child abuse, with sexual assault. There are parallels, but there are also considerable differences. The main difference, if we're talking about a family member, we're talking about that blood connection. To get people to make those disclosures, there is tremendous strength and courage and intestinal fortitude, if you will, to be able to come forward. There is great shame in acknowledging that someone you love has done this to you. There is tremendous fear, fear of retaliation, fear of retribution, fear of institutionalization. And those fears are played on. How big a factor is social isolation in all of this? Social isolation is the key determinant. If an individual is socially isolated from their family, from their friends, and from the community, they are the perfect victim. Part of the issue that is that these crimes uh, are often complex. So yes. you see, you start investigating one thing and then you find out there's oh, yes. a lot else involved. Uh, tell me a little about that. Financial abuse is probably the biggest. It is followed then by psychological or emotional or verbal or psychosocial abuse. It's the psychological or emotional abuse, which is the common denominator. Constable Fleischman, thanks very much. Thank you. That was Constable Pat Fleischman, Vulnerable Persons Coordinator for the Toronto Police Service. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. We'll take a quick break and then return with the music of Earth, Wind and Fire. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Emmy-winning actor Jeff Daniels stars alongside Michelle Williams in a drama that tackles uncomfortable subject matter. Daniels plays a 50-something office worker who's confronted by Williams' character years after he was in prison for a sexual relationship he had with her when she was just 12. Blackbird is an award-winning drama at the Belasco Theatre. In Chicago, there's still time to take in an impressive collection of art by Impressionist Edgar Degas. Degas at the track on the stage is at the Art Institute of Chicago. One of the most important private collections of Andy Warhol art is going on display in Oxford, England, mainly portraits. Hedge fund manager Andrew Hall has spent decades collecting the portraits. The display is at the Ashmolean Museum at the University of Oxford. 
And Paris is in the midst of a funky six-week makeover. Some 40 cutting-edge poster designers are showcasing their latest creations in various public places. This year's festival is celebrating the brilliance of Parisian urban life. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Maurice White, the founder and leader of the band Earth, Wind, and Fire, passed away at the age of 74. He was a former session drummer who created Earth, Wind, and Fire in the late 1960s. The group became immensely popular, selling more than 90 million albums worldwide. Earth, Wind, and Fire had an eclectic, flashy musical style that incorporated White's influences from growing up in Memphis and from working at the famous Chicago music labels OK and Chess. The band's many hits included After the Love Has Gone, Shining Star, and September. That was Earth, Wind, and Fire with September. Their founder, Maurice White, passed away this week at the age of 74. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive Producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.